When Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he learned the power and the love of God. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn lessons from the Exodus and God's great rescue. We are in episode six. Oh, I guess I should probably do this. We are in episode six of our, well, maybe I can't do that. Hold on. Yeah. We're in episode six of our study, Exodus, the Great Rescue. And we left off yesterday or Friday with Moses leaving Egypt, traveling to the land of Midian, getting married, and he's with Ruel or his father-in-law Jethro, and he's basically herding sheep. Um, And the sheep that he's herding are obviously belonging to his father-in-law Jethro, who is a priest of Midian. And he leads the flock to the far side of the wilderness and comes to Horeb, the Mount of God, where he sees God. I want to spend a little bit of time today talking about where Horeb is. This is, uh, I'm going to show a map for those of you that can see the map. This is the, ex, the, not the Exodus, but this is Moses' first journey out of Egypt into Horeb. So he leaves, he leaves Egypt. Uh, he rem- Actually, the Sinai Peninsula is part of Egypt. So he goes down the Sinai Peninsula about halfway crosses over uh, and then comes south into Mount Sinai. I've got a, I've got another map. Let's see. This is this is another map that shows where Mount Sinai is, which is also known as Willow Peak today. There's a there's a saint, uh, uh, nunnery there. Um, but j- just so you know, this is a map of of kind of Egypt and I don't know if my my cursor shows up. Yeah, my cursor shows up. So Egypt is over here. Cairo, which is in the Nile Delta, is over here. Then you have the Red Sea. This is the Red Sea. Um, this is the Suez Canal over here. This is where that ship was. Israel is over here. So Israel is east of Egypt, which occupies most of the Sinai Peninsula. And you go to the south end of Israel, and you are in um, this little inlet right here. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, in this inlet, and I should know the name of that. The Israel is considering building another canal from this point through Israel up to the Mediterranean Sea. So you'd have the Suez Canal over here, and you'd have another canal over here. And the advantage of that is that right now, Egypt charges an outrageous amount of money for ships that just want to go through this Suez Canal. Like, I think it's it's millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars just to send a ship through here. So if Israel were to build another canal, it would put competition between the Suez Canal and the Israeli Canal, and and then the prices would come down and Israel could, could uh, benefit from that. So... That's where Israel is. And then you have Jordan, you have Syria, you have Lebanon over here. And then south, this huge peninsula here is Saudi Arabia. On the south end of Saudi Arabia, you have Yemen, you have Oman, you have the United Arab Emirates. And at the northern tip of the United Arab Emirates, jutting into 
the Gulf of Oman in the Persian Gulf is this town called Dubai. And this is the, um, Dubai is the, <laughs> I wouldn't say it's the crown jewel of the Middle East, but there's a lot, it's a vacant, pe I mean, people have been building there for quite a bit of time, but it's almost like Las Vegas. When the guy went to Las Vegas and basically took desert barren land, pot, bought tons of it for nothing, and then built the built Las Vegas out in the middle of nowhere. It just shows you that you can buy barren desert land out in the middle of nowhere and you can build a city. Well, that's what happened to Dubai. Barren desert land, not worth anything, except it's on the coast, right? And it's in the Persian Gulf. And they've built these incredible town, this incredible town with, they've built, um, oh, what, what do you call it? Peninsulas that jut out into the, to the Persian Gulf that are in the shape of a palm tree. And then they've built these beautiful homes and resorts and stuff like that all, all the way out there. One of these days, I would love to go to Dubai. It is a very metropolitan, cosmopolitan, 21st century city with lots of features. They have air conditioning. They have electricity. They have internet. They have nightlife. It truly is almost like a Las Vegas of, of the Persian Gulf of the Middle East. And there's a lot of, lot of activity going on over there. People go to Dubai all the time, especially Middle Eastern people. The Muslim community loves Dubai. This is where, this is their Las Vegas in the Middle East, I guess you could say. Uh, although I don't know, I don't know much about, uh, the Muslims uh, do not do things that people do in Las Vegas. So I'm sure it's much more conservative area as far as theologically and sociologically. They, they don't do all the things that they do in Las Vegas. Um, so, but, but, the, uh, but at the, in the Sinai Peninsula, that's where, let's see if I can bring up that map again. In the Sinai Peninsula, on the very tip of it is Willow Peak. Um, and let's see, this is, uh, this is where, this is a map of where Mount Sinai is today. So um, I just want to also show you some pictures. You're not going to be able to see these on the podcast, so I'm going to have to describe them to you. But um, this is a picture. Well, let me go to one more picture. This is a picture at the peak of Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, and it looks over St. Catherine's Monastery and if you'll notice in the picture, it is very much looks like uh, Arizona in some places, maybe like a Sedona, where you've got this beautiful rock. There's not a lot of landscape or vegetation in this area. It's a very, very barren vegetated land. And here's a picture of the, the St. Catherine's Monastery looking from the top of Mount Horeb, looking down into the monastery. And as you can see, there's very, very few plants. There's just a few weeds blow, growing up. But other than that, it's just a very desert, barren location. Um, the, uh, it's not as pictured as in the movie Ten Commandments. It, it's truly a very, very um, barren, barren place. So this is where Moses says feeding his sheep. Now, I don't know where you'd feed your sheep around here because there's not a lot of vegetation. So either the vegetation uh, has died or the sheep is just living on the... It's very, very few flocks of sheep that Moses is trying to find and, and uh, move out. 
See, when you have sheep, you have to find grass for them. And in order to find grass, if you're in an area like this, you might have to go far out into different locations to find patches of grass where you can feed your little bits of sheep. And that's probably what Moses is doing. He's going farther and farther out to try to find grass for his sheep. And then he comes across um, the burning bush. But uh, the thing I want to point out is it's, it's, pretty, it's very beautiful. It's incredibly beautiful. Uh, there's lots of purples and browns uh, in this area. Not as red as Sedona. A little bit more majestic and purplish than Sedona is. Um, lots of rock. It's basically just a rock outcropping surrounded by a rock outcropping with very, very little vegetation. So that's, that's basically where it is. And um, we picked up the story on Friday, but I want to just repeat it again because this is, uh, you might have forgotten. Uh, let's see. <laughs> so we'll start at Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And again, Horeb and Sinai, we, we, we'll, talk, we'll see in Exodus, you have Horeb and Mount Sinai. Most authors believe this is the same location, it's just different names, or maybe even different sides of the mountain. It, it could be the same mountain, but you're looking at it from one side or from the other side, how you ascent the mountain. Did you go up the Horeb side or did you go up the Mount, si the Mount Sinai side? If you trace the roots of these names, I remember reading uh, at one place that Horeb and Sinai, Sinai is the moon and Horeb is the sun. And so you have the sun and the moon side of the mountain, maybe based upon where the sun rises and sets, that, that you have different names from the mountain, even from based upon which side you, you know, you are you on the, on the leeward or the wayward side of the mountain, right? And so that, that could possibly be it also. So he leads his flock up to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. We call these things theophanies. Whenever we see God or an angel of God reveal himself as a man or as an angel to, to mankind, when God wants to reveal himself in a person, as he did to Jacob and others, then, then that's called a theophany, T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N-Y, a theophany. And a theophany is basically where God turns into some creature or some humanoid being to reveal himself and to talk. So this is an angel of the Lord who appeared to Moses in a flame of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to from, from within the burning bush, and he said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. So Moses sees a burning bush. He goes over. So obviously there has to be some vegetation, right? So because there's a burning bush. But Moses sees a bush that's burning, and he walks over to it. And God starts talking to him through the bush. And then what does God say? God says, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place that you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And I think this is a 
very natural response to somebody who is in the presence of God. If you truly are in the presence of God and you know you are in the presence of God, a couple things are going to happen. First of all, is you're going to realize that that God exists. We talk about God in a very uh, subjective or abstract way. We don't have direct proof that God exists. And the reason why we don't have direct proof that God exists is because God wants to build faith in us. Because once you know that God exists, without a shadow of a doubt, if you know that God exists, you have a couple. First of all, you know he exists. Second of all, you know that there's some something more powerful than you that could destroy you with the snap of his fingers or the command of his voice. And that's a very, very, very scary thing. And then the, and then the other thing that you have to know, second or third thing, I'm not sure which that would be, is that you have to follow whatever he tells you to do. If God exists, if he has anything that he wants you to do, you have no choice but to follow it. That's simply, that's just the way life works. Because if if um, if an alien race were to come into, you know, I'm just theoretically talking about this. Although NASA, I guess, is releasing pictures that say that aliens ships have come in and they've taken pictures they've documented it and they've kind of held it back so that the population doesn't freak out i think that's interesting first of all you have no proof that's an alien ship if it was proof there was an alien ship what would that do to the human population on the earth it would force us to have a paradigm shift about our place in the universe and it would even have some theological implications right now, there's nothing in the Bible that says that God couldn't have created other places in the universe, that we're part of a grand grand creation of God. It's all faith, right? The whole thing is entirely faith. But it does shake your faith if there is an alien or an, if an alien were to come on Earth and we could document that this is truly an alien, it came in an alien spaceship— it would dramatically change the worldview of how we view ourselves. Is the alien friendly? Is the alien is the alien hostile? If the alien's friendly, how do we know that it's friendly? But if it has the ability to to come through space and onto our planet, then it has technology much greater than we have at this point in time. We don't have the technology to go faster than the speed of light. Aliens would have to be able to go faster than the speed of light in order to get from a distant solar system into our solar system. And we know that there's no life in our solar system except on planet Earth. At least that's what I believe. But in other solar systems across the universe, I have no idea. But if there were, they'd have to travel very, very, very fast. Many, many, many times, multiple times the speed of light so that they could get from one solar system to the other solar system. Or they'd have to find wormholes or alternate galaxy type things. I don't know. But anyway, once they reached here, they would be more powerful than we are. At least at this point, they'd be more powerful than we are. And so we'd have to know, are they friendly or are they going to destroy us? Are they going to conquer us or are they going to destroy us? So Moses is now in the presence of God with a burning bush. He's absolutely convinced that God exists because God's now talking to him out of a burning bush. And now the, the question you're going to have is, is this a friendly God or is this a God that's going to consume me? And the first thing that God tells Moses is not a friendly thing. It's a, 
I wouldn't say it's a hostile thing, but it's it's something that should make you shiver. He says, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And then he says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So the first thing that God says to Moses is, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. I'm the God of your forefathers. And Moses does what everybody would do. It's what I would do in the presence of a power greater than myself. I would bow down on the ground and say, please don't kill me because you obviously have more power than I do. And this would be a natural response to seeing God. I, I've often wondered, I mean, it's a two-edged sword, right? The, all of us want proof that God exists. We want God to come to us in a burning bush. We want God to come to us in a very physical form that proves to us that God exists. But it's a two-edged sword because once you know without a shadow of a doubt that God exists, then you have to, without a shadow of a doubt, follow whatever he tells you to do. Because if you don't, then you are in, you're jeopardizing your relationship with this more powerful being. In this case, God, who is the most powerful being, by definition, the most powerful being in the whole even outside of the universe, the universe and the ununiverse, like God is greater than all of that and the most powerful thing. So you have to follow him. And that's why he gives us free will and he doesn't reveal himself to where faith is not required because he wants us to build our faith. He wants us to make our own decisions. He wants us to live this life with the free will that he wants to give us. And in order to give us free will, he can't reveal himself. He makes us rely on faith. and But Moses, who was living with free will, all of a sudden now comes into the presence of God, and now he has to do what God is going to do. And the question that he has, at first pass, Moses thinks that this God is a very angry God, a very, um, maybe not even a friendly God. Moses doesn't know yet. But we're going to continue reading. We're just going to find out what he says. The Lord says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. So right away we know that God feels that these are his people. I've seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So it appears that he's a friendly God. He's heard the cries of his people who are in slavery of Egypt. Moses likely was one of these people. He slew the Egyptian slave driver. And Moses would have been one of those to cry out. He would have seen the cries of the people who are living in slavery. And it wasn't a nice slavery. I mean, it was a very horrible slavery where these people were just working them to death so that they could build the pyramids and all that sort of thing. And now God's going to come and rescue them from the hands of the G Egypt to bring them out of the land into the good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is all the stuff to the east. 
It's Israel and everything to the east of Israel. That's where these people live. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. All of these people are in this land of Israel and to the east. And now Moses is going to rescue. Land, the rescue. But the thing is, is that he says to, to Moses, so now go, now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Did Moses want to do this? Is this did Moses wake up one morning and say, gosh, I wish I had an encounter with God and he would send me to Egypt to risk my life to ask Pharaoh to let my people go? No, he would have not wanted to do that. I mean, in one respect, you can see that these people are in, in slavery in Egypt and they're going to need somebody to fight for them, to get them out of, out of Pharaoh's grip. And maybe, maybe at some level in his deep heart of hearts, Moses might have known that he was a person that God could use to do this. He had grown up in Pharaoh's court. He spoke Pharaoh's language. He also is of the tribe of Israel. So he's, he's genetically belonging to that tribe, but he's philosophically and educationally belonging to the Egyptian tribe. So he, he is able to put one foot in each side of this, of this groupings of people. And he is really the only person that could go up to Egypt and, and rescue. Of all the people, he's probably the only one that could because he has a foot in both, camp, in both camps. And that's why God created Moses, right? For such a time as this, Moses was created by God in this situation so that he could go and let the Egyptians know that God wants them to release the Hebrew slaves. Um, that, is a, that is an overwhelmingly powerful thought, especially if you are, if there are times in your life when you ask God, God, what do you want me to do? How have you created me? How can I serve you and be your hands and feet in this world? What is the gifting that you've given me and how are you going to use that gift to serve the world? And if any of you have been in a leadership position of the church, you've had questions like this, like what, how am I created and how can I, how can I serve God? And it's a sobering thought to think that God could use any of us for any of our gifts to do things in this world. And it must have been a sobering thought for Moses to go in front of God, have God say, I'm going to lead you to Pharaoh and you're going to ask Pharaoh to let my people go. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, out, the Israelites, out of Egypt. It must have been a scary thought for, for Moses. I mean, at some point he knew that he was equipped for this and maybe even created for such a time as this, but to actually go and do it would be very, very difficult. But the point I want to make, and we'll close with this point, is that Moses had no choice. Because once God revealed himself, that the creator of the universe exists, and yes, you are the person I have chosen to lead the Hebrews out of slavery. You're going to follow me. You're going to do exactly what I tell you. And you have no choice because I am more powerful than you. I created the universe. I'm going to tell you to go do this. It is a very, very sobering thought. But you will look in time 
throughout the history of time that God has come to various people. And it's not in a burning bush, but it is an inkling or it's a, it's, it's a way where God powerfully overwhelms a person and says, this is what I want you to do. In some senses, people who uh, go to the seminary, who felt like they're called into the pastoral ministry, will often have stories like this. Like, I've just felt God calling me. It wasn't a burning bush experience, but it was an experience where I felt convinced that God wanted me to go in a certain path. But it's not limited to people who are, you know, going to the seminary. All of us, no matter what our walk of life, may have these moments in life where God just leads us to do something. Uh, in our lives. It's not a burning bush experience, but it is like a burning bush experience because we become convinced that this is what God wants us to do. And you'll meet people like this. Even the people who started the church that I now serve, they at some point gathered together and they asked God's guidance and wisdom and they said, yes, this is what we feel God is calling us to do. It's a call. And what is the difference between a call and an urge is that a call you can't, you can't go against God in a call. If God's truly calling you to do something and you feel within your heart of hearts that this is what God's calling you, you can't go against God. It, it takes a tremendous amount of belief that God's calling you somewhere else to not, to not do what God's calling you to do. Uh, and it's, it's not just in the pastoral ministry. It's in all walks of life. It's, it's this whole idea that Luther had called vocation. Well, right now, Moses' vocation and his calling is to go rescue his fellow Hebrews out of the land of Egypt in slavery. Um, All right, I think we'll end it there. So would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, thank you for the urgings and the callings that you give us in life and help us to not shirk from these duties, but to follow you with boldness. For when we do your work, we are doing your work. In Jesus' name, amen.